biggest lessons learned from the 80 days one is from being the performance manager being the person that's shoulder to shoulder with an athlete to me that rapport between the athlete and the support has to be really really tight um you know you've got to have really close trust basically So welcome back to the World Extreme Medicine podcast with myself, Owen Walker. In this two-part episode, we're going to be speaking with Worm faculty Laura Penhall and Dan Richards in looking at the Race Across America, which is a 3,000-mile race from the West Coast to East Coast transcontinental across the USA. So in the first part, we're going to be speaking with Laura Penhall on her consulting in the race in the GNC team and looking at some of the nutrition aspects, looking also at some of the cadence of training and some of her technical expertise. Laura was a team leader for the Coxus crew who set two world records in January 2016. So she rode unsupported across the Pacific Ocean, 9,000 miles, nine months to complete and four years to prepare for. Laura is also the lead physiotherapist for the Paralympic program for British Athletics, working in Vancouver, London and the Rio Paralympic Games. Laura then carried on her experience in elite sport to support Mark Beaumont in achieving the world uh, race in under 80 days, so cycling and circumventing the world in under 80 days. She also uh, supported Land's Enter John O'Groats uh, relay record in under 40 hours and uh, the current attempt on the relay record on the race across America. So what we're going to do is speak to Laura, um, like I said, about how intense the race is, the, uh, the combination of fast riding versus uh, minimal sleep. We're also going to look at her nutritional advice, her experience from Mark Beaumont in overlaying lessons learned. Then we're going to look at the Blesma team, so the team that Dan Richards is racing with, and her advice to them. So please do enjoy. So welcome, Laura, to the podcast. Hello. Nice to see you again. Or speak to you again, should I say? Great to speak to yourself. So, Laura, just we just wanted to um, really just understand what RAM is, so this race across America, and uh, just maybe pick pick apart the anatomy of the race and how you've been involved. So, maybe if we could just start by asking you um, how intense this race is, and is it correct that there is no stages? It's just a constant push for three thousand miles. Uh, yeah, exactly. That that's the the biggest challenge with this it is literally the fastest crossing to get from the west coast to the east coast of america um so leaving california and yeah it's a 3030 mile route um and straight away they get the, the the big exposures is really the the range in temperatures the extreme environments that they're going to go through so they they pretty much straight away can get into brutal heat of up to 50 degrees um and when they get to like the Appalachians sort of on the on the further across and then going across the desert they're they're basically or the plains should I say they're going to be exposed to that 50 degrees heat and up to 80 90 percent of humidity so um yeah so there's brutality in the conditions and the exposure as well as the distance and the point is is it's being the fastest it means therefore it's it's non-stop so it's all about strategy and kind of timing of strategy and and kind of you know for the pairs team that I'm supporting how we've we'll go into in a bit but how we've aimed at designing the strategy is it's just a really fine line between maximizing power and recovery and that sort of 
how minimal can you get in order to maintain power across six to seven days, which is six days is what their target is. It sounds brutal. And like you say, just a continuity of, of, of brutal uh, mileage across the duration of the race. But so the winner appears to be the rider that can combine sort of a fast riding uh, cadence with uh, infrequent stops. Uh, could, so how have you built and guided your advice around the principle of sort of minimal sleep and fast riding? Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a tight game to be honest, and it it does come down to individuality and also practice and exposure to what riders have previously had, you know, to sleep severe sleep deprivation. Really, there's a there's a really good book, um, Hell on Two Wheels, which is an old book. It was written, I think, back in like 2014, maybe, um, uh, with an individual that looked at a lot of the previous old school solo races, and the solo riders historically run to a strategy of riding for like 24 hours and getting one hour's sort of sleep cycle. Um, and But they end up in a real world of trouble. You know, that a lot of them have kidney problems and all sorts of things by the ends. Like kind of they, they put themselves properly physiologically and physically just absolutely to the wire of, of how they finish. Um uh, whereas kind of how we've approached it one the the team that i'm supporting is with global cycling network and we've got mark beaumont and jonathan schubert jonathan schubert is a presenter for gcn and the two of them are going to go enter into the relay so in the ram race you've got solo riders you've got pairs you've got fours teams and you've got eights teams um there's only ever one rider on the on the road at one time if you're in a team and the point is, is there's a strategy of where you have to cross over and overlap. And if you, if say, for instance, the second rider goes before the the first rider has come into that checkpoint, um, then you get docked time and stuff like that. So it's it's got to be quite a slick crossover um, to minimise any time loss. And so with our guys, what I looked at is, you know, to design their strategy, it, it's a bit of a balancing act between you know, how do you maintain optimal power and sort of what is their physiology makeup to maintain a good power consistency, as well as obviously what they need from recovery from sleep deprivation. So what I looked at was, okay, you know, Mark in particular, is he's been ocean rowing, we've done the 80 days, we've done a number of other things as well, lands into John DeGroat's records and things. And you know, I know he's used to getting a very small amount of sleep, but what I wanted for both of them is to get at least a couple of sleep cycles in them per day. So therefore, that meant I wanted to give them two two-hour blocks of rest per day. So how I designed their strategy was doing an hour on, hour off in the daytime and through the heat, and that can then therefore be adjusted down or up if needs be. If there's higher wind, it will drop down, to, uh, like headwind or a crosswind, it will drop down to 30 minutes. Um, and same if it's if they're struggling in the heat, it could drop down to 30 minute turns. But otherwise, through the day, they're going to do an hour on, hour off, uh, whilst they swap over to the other rider. And then during the night times, so between the hours of kind of 8 till 6 a.m. the next morning, they're going to do two-hour stints. And then, therefore, that allows them to do a 90-minute sleep cycle twice with 30 minutes of, of kind of faff time, basically getting some food in, um, getting some treatment in, changing, you know, washing, that sort of stuff, um, to allow them to get back on the bike to do another two-hour stint. So 
that the reason for that was the compromise of okay giving them some sleep cycles to recover allowing them then in the daytime to do the hour turns but at the same time if we really were looking at maintaining power actually we do a lot lot shorter than an hour we most probably would go some of the pairs teams previously have done like 15 20 minutes turns the problem is is kind of your team your support team on the road has to be really slick and practiced at doing that and the balance that we had was that the GCN team and the, the performance team that are going to be around them whether it's mechanic the drivers navigators are all a new team and they've only done one practice together and so given that inexperience within the team and the practice with these riders it seemed really vulnerable to try and do something for the first time in such short stints because you've basically got to get the vehicles ahead of the riders to get if you can try and picture it it's a bit difficult but if you imagine you've got in a vehicle you've got the one rider and that's got to drive ahead stop off you've got to get the bike off the back you've got to get the rider out of the vehicle onto the bike ready set up for them to be able to push off as the rider that's on the road comes in you've then got to get that rider and the bike in a van overtake stop off get out you know and do do that again and just keep doing that time and time again so when it's kind of 15 20 minute turns like that that's I mean, that's massively tiring at the best of times for the rest of the support staff. Um, so that's where I've made it an hour on hour off. And even that is going to be is going to be pretty challenging for the support team just as much as the riders themselves. So, yeah, it's a, it's a big Absolutely. balancing act between kind of, yeah, their power output, their recovery time, but also sustainability of the crew on the road and, and what's achievable with the experience you've got. Yeah, the cadence of change there is is so short that there's the it, it leaves least amount of room possible for error, which is uh, like you said, in, in an inexperienced team is is probably not for the for the best. But just Laura, as as we uh, as we sort of look at, into your involvement, how did you become involved into sort of consulting for the pairs record within the GCN team? Yeah, so it kind of came about because well having worked with Mark Beaumont quite a bit so I, I did the I supported him on the 80 days his world record when he cycled around the world in under 80 days so I did his performance management preparation for that and then also then worked with Global Cycling Network with Mark and another rider at the time Hank who's a GCM presenter to do Land's End to John O'Groats as a pair um, and they they broke that record so they cycled from Land's End to John O'Groats in under 40 hours and then they, again, we did another one as an attempt as, for a tandem, where it was shortly after. And unfortunately, that wasn't successful, but we learned a lot from that. So hopefully we'll go ahead again with that later on this year. So, yeah, I've been involved with with sort of Mark and GCN it, doing some consultancy with them around their performance planning and preparation for the big expeditions. So when this came up Mark's been wanting to do it as a solo for a long time and potentially it might be on the cards for next year and so then therefore this year doing it as a pair was the was the vision to do it to learn a lot about the route the planning the you know the temperatures the conditions basically um, so he could really get a feel for the ride and the race itself to see what he's going to need to do um, to get him in best fitness and preparation for next year 
So as you say, Laura, it's, it, it appears to be both a solo race and a team race, you know, and you can enter uh, on either or either medium. What, what, what would you say are the real standout differences in dynamics between support teams for a solo race versus the support team for a team race? Yeah, no, it's a good question. It, it, yeah, the, the solo, on a so first and foremost on a rider perspective, obviously the solo race, it, yeah it comes down to strategy and kind of the individual themselves like maintaining that power output for such a long period of time and as i said like historically the rider has sustained like a 24-hour riding pattern with only an hour off the bike in a 24-hour period um the the challenge you've got as a solo rider is not just power output i mean it's power output but it's not just that it's actually the rest of the body as well the condition of the rest of the body so if you if anybody's read the the hell on two wheels book you'll see there that people lose their neck control so what happens is sort of by just having to hold their head for that period of time in a more horizontal position because they're in that very aero front position um and it, when they're in that aggressive position, you know, holding the weight of your head for 24 hours a day isn't something people necessarily think about being an issue. But actually, the amount the, the muscles have to have strength endurance, like is a crazy amount. And unfortunately, they those muscles can fail if they're not getting the adequate recovery. And so you'll see in the some if people Google it and stuff as well, but on Hell and Two Wheels, there's great images well, not so great, where people have literally got to prop their head up. They've they've strapped like ironing boards to their backs back in the day and put big straps around their chins because literally their heads are like a bobbing doll. They've just got no, they've completely failed, like complete muscular failure in the back of their necks. Um, and obviously that in its, it is probably, and that in itself is obviously extremely dangerous because then they can't turn their head, you know, you can't look at, you're still going across junctions and, you know, it's a road it's still roads normal roads with traffic on so yeah hugely dangerous and some so those those are the sorts of issues i'd say you see more in in a solo rider and from a medical point of view a lot more kidney issues um and severe attrition that that happens whereas for the pairs you know being able to get a strategy where you're getting frequent recovery but not at the detriment of loss too long on the bike to lose power is is the sweet spot but what that means from a support team as as we were discussing before it's there's a lot more for the support team to be frequently there's a lot more team a lot more people on the road so in a just in a pairs team you've got well for this ride across america for the gcn team you've got two volo follow vehicles that sit behind each of the riders and that follow vehicle is is their bed is their home is their kitchen is their treatment space everything so that literally travels behind the rider when they're on the road it picks up that rider it drives that rider ahead and whilst they're driving ahead is where they'll get fueled on that in that vehicle they'll get a cat nap they'll get treatment they'll change they'll have a wash whatever um, that is their sort of mobile unit their bubble and then you've got a third vehicle that will be on the road that is like the hub so to speak so that will drive about four or five hours up the road they'll stop off you've got the chef on that one and chef support plus spares and those sorts of things and so the chef then is cooking for the whole support team as well as cooking some warm food and prepared food for the riders 
And then what happens is, is the two follow vehicles will cross over with that vehicle once or twice in the day to pick up a box of food and anything else that needs replenishing in the van whilst they're carrying on with the riders. So there's a lot more logistical sort of headache, I suppose, for the for the project manager when there's more than one rider on the road. Um, whereas when there's one rider, obviously you can get away with just having one one vehicle, but you I would suggest you'd have two vehicles still that one that goes ahead. So then therefore the team can rotate to have sleep patterns as well. So that you've got to consider what's the support team actually going through? You know, the the drivers, the navigators, the chefs, the the mechanics, the the performance managers, all of that staff that's on the road, you know, they need to rotate. You can't have a driver driving for more than four four hours at a time. Um, you know, and same with the navigator, they need to also get sleep cycles. So it's about how do you rotate within the team whilst the vehicle basically continues to move on and support. Um, and that's the case for both solo and for pairs or fours or eights or whatever. But as soon as you get bigger teams like eights, then usually in an eights team, you've, you'll have you have two groups of four. So they still ride as a four, if that makes sense. But your half of the four will go well ahead for like a day or like half a day. Um, and then they'll get a proper rest for like six hours and then they'll jump on the road and do the rotations um what's the other the other sort of four rest but that's when you've got like a big bus for instance to to account for more than one person having to sleep in the back um so yes yeah, so the difference between sort of solo and any teams is is the manpower basically that is required to support support the riders on the road and it suddenly gets a little bit more logistically difficult to manage the moving parts and management of sleep and food and all of that stuff for the, the team that gets bigger and bigger. So, Laura, looking at the winner of RAM in the past, they sort of usually finish uh, after eight or nine days riding like we were saying before, up to 22 hours a day through varied and extreme terrains uh, that the US has to offer. From your perspective, and maybe from your previous anecdotal experience, what are the key elements of nutrition um, that you focus on with the riders, Laura, when you're supporting them? Yeah, nutrition is a massive thing. Nutrition and hydration, obviously, especially in those the the heat and the the climate that they're going through. Um, I, I mean, I with always with this, it's about getting the right energy balance and kind of the macros, like what what's the key that they they need, you know. There's lots of chat out there around, um, you know, low carb diets or the sort of the paleo stuff or all different things and people that are wanting to do things vegan and and that sort of stuff, which, you know, is totally doable. But if you actually are looking at top, top performance, then then people, you need carbohydrate to, to fuel the stores. Yes, you can be a fat adapted athlete, um, but you still need carbohydrate when you're, you're needing to push high powers. Um, and also during this, you need good sources of protein and frequency of it so that you can maintain the muscle damage that is basically, you know, going on throughout. So you'll never be able to match the amount of protein required or digest the amount of protein required to to stay on top of muscle degradation. But you just want to minimize kind of the deplenishment, you know, by the end of the race. Also, when you so first and foremost, 
the way to look at it is we we tend to do physiology testing so for these riders that have gone now we linked up to Loughborough University and they did some basic physiology testing to see sort of really where their drop-offs were now obviously that's quite a clinical setting and it's what was good was to then be able to test that for them to do a thousand mile ride and then get tested again like literally as soon as they finish that thousand mile ride to sort of see actually do the numbers stay the same or if they change um, and one of the riders in the GCN group for instance wasn't able to finish the test and that was partly because he hadn't fueled enough and you could see that in his numbers so it just goes to show how important and that was after two and a half days of riding and he's going to need to do six days of riding for this for this event so fueling is is really really important and really important to get it right on top of that if you think right you've got to work out what numbers do they need you know what size and weight are they these sorts of things this is all where I then draw on the expertise after getting the physiology testing are then bringing nutritional scientists to to basically look at the athlete see what the preferences are and then be able to formulate the numbers of what carbohydrate protein fats are required on each hour across 24 hour period so that then we can work with the chef to formulate a meal plan that makes sure they they're getting what they need and what they're expending um, and so that's kind of what we did. And we've we've literally got a full spreadsheet. And the guys that are on the road with these riders now will be inputting everything that the riders are consuming during the ride when they get off the bike um, and inputting that and keeping a track of are they getting enough carbohydrate, fat, protein? And if not, what do they need to dial up, dial down? Now, if you imagine that means they've just got to fuel constantly and and the gut isn't it needs to get used to that so it isn't that you can just turn up to a race and be fueling every half an hour for the next six days you know your your gut would have quite a bit of an issue with that Um, and it's also what types of things are you feeding the gut and also think about oral health as well because historically carbohydrate drinks for instance they're just very corrosive and can be very acidic so that can impact dental health as well as, and so the oral health, as well as impacting the gut health as well. Um, and often those carbohydrate type drinks and gels, those sorts of things, they can really strip the pH because they're high high acidity. And more often than not, if anybody's done more than six hours of riding based purely on and fueled only by gels and carbohydrate drinks, you'll know that your stomach just starts to repel it after sort of six to eight hours maybe you might get to 12 hours if you're lucky so there's some great products that are now out there we've we've been working with a company called morton and morton have have got some fantastic science behind the products that they've designed and long and short of it is it's it's ingested the carbohydrate you get the 100 grams or 80 grams of carbohydrate that you might need and that's ingested in a format that's like an alginate and it it enables the carbohydrate to pass, you know, to be ingested, get through the stomach, but then not actually get absorbed until it hits the the upper part of the intestine. And therefore, it doesn't change the pH of the stomach. It doesn't change the pH and the oral health. So actually, somebody can, and Mark in particular, is able to fuel on the bike purely off of the carbohydrate drinks and the gels without getting any disruption. And obviously, we've trained it. We've trialed it. Um 
and he doesn't get any stomach issues. So for him in particular, we've got he'll be fueled on on the bike, literally trying to get in a hundred and hundred between a hundred to hundred and twenty grams of carbohydrate per hour when he's on the bike. Um, an equivalent to about 100 grams as well, 80 to 100 grams when he's off the bike. But that's where we try and increase the protein um, and the fats as well when he's off bike in whole foods. So on the bike is carbohydrates through the drinks. And then off bike is where we get more of the other macros. Um, and then alongside that, we're looking at any other additional supplementation to maximize, say, antioxidants, phytonutrients, those sorts of things to help manage the the byproducts that they're going to be producing when they're working at this high intensity so it really is extensive and um, I think that you've just demonstrated just the levels of scrutiny and detail that you have to go into to really optimize performance at an individual and at a team level Um, and I can very much attest to from my personal experience around the gels and and around Mm -hmm. the way that that it was almost a forced diuresis and uh, very almost very sickening when you get the wrong um, concentrate or indeed the wrong mixture but so actually attention to detail through all these domains is, is, as you were saying, absolutely necessary. Laura, just bringing it back to your experience with Mark Bowman, because you spoke about him quite a lot just then, um, and in the world circumnavigation um, bike race that he that he w- and you were involved in, could you maybe just speak to some of the key lessons you took from that, which can be really mm. pulled over to the race across America? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good point. I mean, I, I suppose it depends on what lens we've got with this. You know, my let biggest lessons learned from the 80 days one is from being the performance manager being the person that's shoulder to shoulder with an athlete to me that rapport between the athlete and the support has to be really really tight um you know you've got to have really close trust basically i i trusted mark to not make too many stupid decisions but he also trusted me to he knew that I'd never pull him off the road, basically, unless I was really, really concerned and we would discuss it. But if he wasn't in in the right capacity, for instance, you know, severely sleep deprived and, and not able to decision make, then he knew that I would have his best interest and I've got his I've got his back fundamentally. Um, so trust, I think, uh, but in that relationship is really, really important. And then also, if you imagine as a performance manager, you want to kind of create a bubble because you want to create emotional consistency around the individual. I knew that Mark was going to have considerable highs and lows at different times. And so I needed to be able to support that, be aware of that and have the insight of it, but at the same time, not get too drawn into it, that it made me low or made me too high. Like the, the person that's a support team needs to remain quite emotionally consistent and I think that's that's quite that's really important what we found from say the 80 days is those people kind of that were brilliant team members to support but would have less experience in the performance space didn't quite have that self-awareness and those nuances so when they were a bit sleep deprived or or down like that would eke into having a bit of a response around the athlete which is not really what they need to see or hear and second of all, actually, you know, sometimes thinking that the support team would be like, oh, doing loads of cheering on and and sort of heightening of emotion when actually, you know, the rider's going through absolute hell. And so no, if you know the rider well enough, you'll know that that is not what they need right now. It's it's not the right timing. And by sometimes doing that sort of stuff, it 
it makes the it can make the rider feel quite lonely or even more disconnected from the team if they're not aware of what's going on so to me one of the biggest learnings is how you create that bubble and that that sort of real trust emphasis around the athlete but at the same time how do you share that awareness and understanding to the outer team and how do you also get the outer team to be on board with with sort of some emotional consistency when they might not be used to working in that kind of performance environment um that was yeah that that was really insightful i think on a on a more specific level though that's that's kind of the team dynamic side of things on a more kind of medical side of stuff what was interesting and particularly with mark i would say you know he he's ridden a bike since he was 12 years of age and he's never touched wood really had any major kind of injuries um when he's riding so when we started to do 80 days we did a trial ride around britain and i just remember he, he like halfway up through around scotland he was complaining of his hamstring and you know you, you don't tend to he was presenting like he had a hamstring tear and you, you don't tear a hamstring cycling you know it's that's not it's not the normal type of injury to get basically when you're riding because yes you use your hamstring but it's not put under the load and tension and deceleration forces which usually cause a tear so um that was really unusual and because i was a bit sleep deprived obviously myself then it takes a couple of days to for me to sort of for me to realize what's going on and actually what had happened is because he was a bit saddle sore he ended up wearing two pairs of um shorts two pairs of bib shorts so actually what had happened was there was a seam that was doubled up and then because he was sitting on the saddle that was then creating compression right over the hamstring tendon so of course every cycle with compression was then causing irritation on the tendon um, and did lead to a bit of initially it would have been more of an inflammatory response and then it did lead to a very small tear so but what was the learning point from that is you know he's not some that's not a natural type of injury to get and secondly you know if he was to get anything it's usually something external like i needed to look outside the box and not just treat the hamstring um and what again was another learning point is reminding myself that i'm going to be sleep deprived so my ability to problem solve is going to get more and more narrowed the further i got into the into the expedition myself so that's why for then the 80 days i had somebody come in to do a six-day window for me in australia so that i could i could get some time out make sure i was refreshed to continue the journey so i did all of it bar six days in order to for me to get some recovery so i could be my best self if that makes sense to support him um, and i think that's that's one of the biggest learnings and what I see time and time again in other support teams is that, you know, people don't provide the support to themselves to do the support, if that makes sense. I think kind of those in caring professions like yourself, Owen, you know, I'm sure time and time again, you would have looked at the shifts that you've pulled and, and docs on this, maybe listening to this call, you know, you, you provide the care and you provide all the advice to patients and to other people, but actually, you know when do you actually look after yourself and it's no different to thinking about the oxygen mask in a in a plane is it you, you've got to you've got to look after yourself before you can look after others you've got to put that oxygen mask on you before you put it on the person next to you so um to me that that sort of taking care of yourself in order to 
survive and thrive in an expedition environment is really important. Laura, I think that's excellent advice. And I think you're right, too commonly it's negated uh, within carers and indeed within support teams. And uh, like you said, it's harder to reach outside of yourself when you're when, when there's no self-care there. But just looking at um, the a team that, that Wemmer directly sort of um, know and involved in. So a friend of Wem's, Dan Richards, who is uh, a right arm and shoulder amputee, is racing as part of the Blesma team. So I guess the Blesma team is the Limbless Veterans uh, British charity, which helps all serving and ex-service men and women who have lost limbs in uh, service. But so uh, actively knowing that he's going to be riding as part of a team, how do you envisage um, the, 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 the stresses, the strains and maybe the challenges that they may face, Laura? Yeah, no, I mean, that, those guys are they're a great team and Years ago, I supported a group called the Adaptive, well, it's called Adaptive Grand Slam. So they, they're a team of ex-veterans, all injured in war, that uh, have basically climbed the seven summits of the world and the two poles. And, um, and it, yeah, like having, I was lead physio with, with British Athletics leading into Rio. So dealt with a number of amputees and, and other, other different disabilities. And I think, to me, well, there's a few there's a few things I think that will be challenging for them in particular. One is the heat for sure is going to be a real a real challenge with kind of stump management for those that are amputees, um, whether it's arm or or lower limb. Um, certainly that the swelling, but then it's just going to be the extremes of heats will affect kind of the the socket you know if they've if they've got a prosthetic in situ then how that socket fits will will be really challenged because it might fit now that's been fitted in the UK but of course you go over there and it's extreme heats means you're going to get swelling um, and then they'll maybe potentially struggle to get it back on so that in itself I think will be a challenge also the amount of sweat that will be produced and then therefore risk of hair follicle infection or sores that that produce especially if the socket's not fitting well um that in itself will cause friction and therefore risk of of socket sores basically on the stump um the other thing is is neurally some respond really well to heat like actually that helps to dampen nerves um others it's the opposite so it'll be interesting to see as well whether those that get any phantom limb pain if that gets worse or or better you know it could go one of two ways um so that kind of neuralgic type pain yeah whether that's that's an issue um and yeah and that that sort of nerve response i think i'm not sure if there is anybody on this that's there's sometimes people will be part of this team that will have like a brachial plexus injury through you know say a gunshot wound um so then they've got sort of a fixed flail kind of arm so nerve pain and also looking after the limb can be quite difficult so with with dan i think is dan a he's a arm amp isn't he he's is he both is dan an arm? he is an arm an arm and a shoulder yeah yeah uh, yeah, right. yeah yeah so if he's he's an arm and if i don't know if he's going to be wearing a prosthetic sometimes they have um they may have modified the bike to add something that he can lean his stump against, or he may be wearing a prosthetic, which means then he's got the balance, you know, to put some load through that side. Um, but yeah, the what will be interesting is how he manages the dependency of that limb and the swelling. So again, that in itself can cause 
pain if there's there's diffuse swelling can cause pain in the stump if not neuralgic pain as well so so yeah those would be the things that i would say are the obvious and then because their symmetry on the on the bike you know they wouldn't necessarily have gone through there's one thing going through a bike fit there's another thing really being high performing on on a bike you know so at british cycling the paralympic team the whole point is they're trying to to help their prosthetics they're set up on the bike to to get equal power so you're not getting too much imbalance across the bike whereas with these guys I, I doubt they would have had that level of support or training to to get really smooth on the bike so then therefore that means you know if you've got a right amputee it might be that it's the left achilles that takes more load so actually you get an achilles tendinopathy um that type of thing or you get saddle sores that because they're shifting a lot across the bike um so there'll be other issues which will be due to compensations that potentially will crop up and be a problem. So Laura, as we come into land on a conversation, have you got any sort of final thoughts for people that may be considering a race across America in the future, maybe entering as a solo and or a team uh, for the race? Yeah, I'd say do it. I think, um, no, I think in all seriousness, Ride Across America is is a really punchy challenge. Um, it's it's a big race, well supported, but it needs a lot of thought, a lot of preparation. And it is a really, it is a stretch goal. Like it's it's a big push. Um, and, and the important thing is to get the right, the right support team around you, people with experience um, that have, yeah, know what the route is, know what the the terrain is and kind of what it takes to to get you know support team and a rider or team across across from the west coast to the east coast of america um the the biggest thing for me is yeah you know i i'm always a firm firm believer if my husband always laughs at me but somebody says about a, a big goal i'm like great do it go for it um you know it's never a no it's just more about get the planning and the preparation if you know that's what you want to do awesome now go about speak to loads of people read the books really understand what what it's going to take to do to do say for instance right across america and then know where you are now in order to do your gap analysis figure out your plan and your process and get those small goals laid out so that you you just don't leave any stone left unturned so you make you make it achievable as well as, you know, it's always going to be a stretch and a challenge, but you don't want to turn up to do this sort of race unprepared. It's it's definitely one that you've got to be well prepared, well supported. Um, and then, yeah, got to go ahead and enjoy it. Yeah, that sounds really comprehensive, Laura. And um, absolutely, it's, it's about breaking the larger challenge into into smaller incremental steps. But um, And that's fantastic uh, advice. Laura, listen, thanks for your thoughts and your reflections today. Re I really do appreciate your time and indeed your insights into a race such as this. Great. Thanks for having me, Owen. And um, good luck to Dan as well, taking on Blisma. If you've enjoyed this episode of the World Extreme Medicine podcast, please subscribe, like and share. And if you want to meet lots of other risk taking, rule bending and inspirational people, then you need to be in Edinburgh on the 19th to the 21st of November for this year's conference. Tickets are on sale now. Go to extrememedicineexpo.com to find out more.